Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you joining us today. Uh, thank you for downloading and subscribing to the podcast. I really appreciate it. And this week's episode, I feel like, is so perfect for the events that transpired last week, at least in my life. Uh, today, I'm happy to have uh, the wonderful Sharon Salzberg on the program talking about her new book, Real Love. And if any of you follow me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you follow the podcast, uh, you have probably heard me say, or you've seen many, many pictures of Benson. So Benson was my cat and the mascot for the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. And unfortunately, into my uh, great sadness, he... Uh, passed away last week, and I feel like this podcast with Sharon and the things that she talks about in this interview um, were so perfect and actually helped me over the last couple of days. And um, she, in it, she talks about her book Real Love, and there's there's one uh, thing that really stuck out with me when I saw her speak a couple of weeks ago uh, here in New York City. And she talked about love as being, yes, it's a feeling. We all know love is a feeling. But she brought up the concept of love as an ability. And oftentimes we don't think of it as an ability. We always think of it as a feeling. And I know I feel this way, and I'm sure many, many other millions of people with pets feel the same way as that your pets actually help with your ability to love. And I think it's really important. And I can honestly say that uh, Benson definitely did that for me. Sorry. Um, Gosh, I thought I'd get through that without getting too emotional, but I guess not. Um, So um, I'm just happy that I had him for as long as I had and that everyone who listens to the podcast got to see him and love him just the same. Um, I think all pets have, can do that for you to kind of increase your ability to love, to love yourself, to love others, and to love the universe. And that's exactly what we're talking about today with Sharon Salzberg. So like I said, her book, Real Love, comes out uh, June 6th. It's beautiful, and I highly suggest everyone go out and get it. I have already pre-ordered my copy, so if you listen to this today, you can go on to Amazon and pre-order your copy ASAP. Um, so Sharon, so if, you, if you're not familiar with Sharon, Sharon is a, I guess, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, a meditation guru. I don't know if she would cringe at that. I feel like she might, so I apologize. Um, she... Uh, along with Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield, founded the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, uh, which now ranks as one of the most prominent and active meditation centers in the Western world. Um, they, she served as a panelist with the Dalai Lama. 
uh, and leading scientists. She collaborates with leading neuroscientists uh, around the country and around the world. She is a best-selling author. She's written nine books, including Loving Kindness, the New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, and Real Happiness at Work. Um, like I said, her new book, Real Love, uh, comes out tomorrow. If you're listening to this uh, today, it comes out tomorrow, June 6th. She is a weekly columnist for On Being, a regular contributor to the Huffington Post, was a contributing editor of Oprah's O Magazine for several years. She has appeared in Time Magazine, Yoga Journal, MSNBC, Tricycle, Real Simple Body and Soul, Mirabella, Good Housekeeping, Self, uh, and more and more and more. Uh, she teaches around the world. You can find out more information on uh, for where her where she is next teaching at SharonSalzberg.com. And I highly suggest you go and listen to her speak because as you'll hear in this interview, there were times where I didn't know what, I was speechless because everything she says is so spot on. And it just, it's disarming a little bit, uh, but beautiful. Um, so what we talk about in this episode is an introduction to love and kindness meditation, practical strategies to incorporate meditation into a busy schedule, is self-compassion through meditation considered laziness, which Sharon hopes readers, readers will learn from real love, and viewing love as an ability, not a feeling, kind of what we said before. So really the the book, the real love, the, the, the journey enables us to become more present and to begin to experience real love, love based on direct interactions rather than preconceptions, which is so hard. When we are truly engaged in these present experiences, we are not only able to feel more connected to our own core selves, but also to those around us and ultimately to life itself. And that's kind of what Sharon talks about. So the book is really divided into three sections. Real love explores love in the three arenas of life for oneself, for one another, and love for all of life. So I adore Sharon Salzberg. Every time she speaks in New York, I make sure I get there. So please consider uh, grabbing her book. Um, I know I can't wait for mine to come in the mail, hopefully uh, within the next couple of days. Um, and again, uh, thank you to everyone for your sympathies and the love that you've shown Benson and, and myself and the podcast over the past couple of days. So really happy that this episode came up uh, at this time. And um, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. And I hope you have a wonderful week and um, enjoy this episode with the amazing Sharon Salzberg. Hi, Sharon. Welcome to the podcast. Honored to have you on. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Okay, so tomorrow is the release of your newest book, Real Love, which is tomorrow's June, uh, Tuesday, June 6th. So you've written many books. How does real, what makes real love different from some of the books you've written in the past? I think in one way, and maybe the most simple way, it's, it's different because I'm always different and I'm learning. And I especially feel like I learned a lot in the process of creating this book. I met with many groups of people. I asked for people's stories and their experiences. I used social media and asked people to please send me their stories and their experiences. And in some funny way, I almost feel like I crowdsourced it. And also the examples I use and the, even the quotations I have, I tried to have really be as, as contemporary as possible as a reflection of, of where we are and who we are right now. 
And I think that's interesting because meditation has been around for such a long time and the concept of meditation. And so to bring it, to make it, like you said, a little more contemporary, do you feel like it's, it will help you kind of reach a new audience of people who maybe think of meditation as something that's a little woo-woo and kind of out <laughs> of their comfort zone, right? Well, I, and I think that's been the continual process over the last 40-some years since I came back from India. When I first came back from India, certainly it was it was much more of a sense of I'd be at a party or some social situation and somebody would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I teach meditation. And they would kind of go, oh, that's weird. And Or maybe they'd, they'd ask, did you meet the Beatles when you were over there? I'd say, no, sadly, they, you know, when I was in high school. Um, and now, of course, I think in large measure, based on some of the research, the science, uh, and the very clear delineation between meditation practice, which is a set of methods to train attention, and any kind of belief system. They don't have to go together at all. I think uh, there's much more understanding about the potential of meditation. Maybe we're also more stressed out as well, uh, because people come you know, in large measure to, to deal with something like stress. And it's a very different world now. Yeah. And I'm, I think, you know, I'm a physical therapist. A lot of people listening to this podcast are working in healthcare and I work a lot with people in pain and meditation is always one of my staples that I try and inject into my treatment plans for my patients in pain based on research on very sound research, notably from a woman that you sort of turned me on to Sarah Lazar out of Harvard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think with her research, and, and I think there's research down in North Carolina um, coming out showing how much meditation can benefit people, especially people in pain. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also a very interesting study out of the University of Wisconsin at Madison in Richie Davidson's lab in which um, he basically found one of the significant differences between meditators and non-meditators and how they related to physical pain was um, the question of anticipation. You know, the, the non-meditators would have a reaction and would then begin to immediately anticipate when's it going to come back? Is it going to be worse? Or maybe I won't be able to tolerate it. Whereas the, the meditators might react to the pain as human beings we do, but then they could let it go when it was withdrawn. And so they had a period of respite of, of real rest and that made a very different experience. Oh gosh, absolutely. The antis and it's true. Like, you know, when we go to the doctor, even for people who don't have chronic pain, the anticipation of a needle going in for a shot is mm -hmm. oftentimes much worse. That's right. Than the actual needle going in for the shot. So that's really interesting. I'm going to have to look that up. Um, okay, so one of the uh, parts about what you teach and, and what I like and is part of my meditation practice is the loving kindness meditation or meta. Mm -hmm. um, so can you explain to the listeners what that type of meditation is? Mm -hmm. Loving kindness meditation is a kind of distinct methodology where uh, we're practicing, in effect, paying attention differently. So uh, we use the silent repetition of certain phrases and we rest our attention on those phrases, uh, simple phrases. They're, they're phrases of generosity of the spirit, like, uh, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. Um, so it's considered a kind of gift-giving meditation. Um, and the first recipient is actually ourselves, which is also very interesting. So what we're doing in effect with with learning to concentrate more 
on those phrases is we're paying attention in a very different way. So, for example, we think about ourselves at the end of the day, if we kind of evaluate ourselves, and if we're the kind of person who pretty well only remembers the mistakes we made and the ways we blew it and what we said wrong and so on, um, the wishing well in the in the meditation in a way rounds out the picture because we don't want to deny those mistakes or pretend they didn't happen, but it's not all that happened by any means. It never is. And we can tend to fixate on what's wrong and not appreciate what's right and what's good. And so we're just trying to get a more truthful picture by paying attention differently. And there's a very, very strong component of being inclusive. You know, what about all those people we ignore or we we look right through, usually people who play some kind of role in our lives, like grocery store clerk or you know dry cleaner or something that we don't necessarily recognize as a person who wants to be happy just as we do. They're just a kind of function in our minds. And, and so the question comes up, what happens when we look at them instead of through them? Um, and we do all that um, shifting and transitioning in attention through the phrases. And I, I have to say, I always find the hardest person to focus on is myself. Mm-hmm. So can you focus on someone else first and then go to yourself? Uh, certainly you can do that. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And, but, you know, in the end, somewhere we have to be included because especially, you know, when you're in a helping profession or a healing mm-hmm. profession. And um, in the end, I think there really needs to be some kind of balance. You're not... Uh, exclusively focused on yourself and not caring about others and you're not focused on yourself in a bad way you know it's being self-preoccupied or selfish but at some point we need a sense of renewal we need resilience we need to replenish and uh, I don't think anybody can just give and give and give and give and give and not feel exhausted unless they're also giving to themselves yeah so it's that sense of of self-love which is not being I don't know what's the word. It's it's not like you're being self-centered to give yourself that that gratitude toward yourself. No, that I don't think it's self-centered yourself. at all. I think it's um, it's almost like science. You know, it's kind of it's like, of course, the um, often used example these days is if you're on an airplane and the flight attendants make those safety announcements and they say, if the oxygen masks descend, put your own on first before you try to help anybody else and. Um, there's a certain sense to that. Um, and here I'm saying, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be first, but at least put it on soon, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, um, you know, if you look at something like burnout in helping professions, it's a very significant thing. And um, I don't see it as uh, fluffy or a luxury. I think it's a real public health crisis that so many people taking care of other people are, are burning out. And um, there may be inner resources that we can apply that would really help that. Yeah, and I think I actually hear that a lot from new graduate physical therapists who are kind of burning out in their first couple of years mm. of practice, which is, you know, that's the opposite of what you want from your healing professional. Yeah. Because it doesn't help you and it certainly doesn't help the person you're caring for. That's right. So meditation can be a way that can be incorporated into that into the lifestyle so that you don't burn out. But then here's a question. What about people who say, I don't have time to sit down for 20 minutes twice <laughs> a day. I can't do it. Because I'm sure you hear that a lot. Uh-huh. I mean, it may not 
end up being 20 minutes twice a day. What I usually recommend is like one period, um, maybe it's 10 minutes, maybe it's 20 minutes of a real dedicated practice where you're not sitting down to redecorate your office and also meditate. You know, that may come up, but it's not your intention. You're just sitting down to strengthen qualities like awareness and compassion. Um, That's your intention. And so there's that one period that's just dedicated to that. And then there's what we call sometimes short moments many times, you know, before you uh, press send on the email, you know, take a few breaths or uh, before you drink that cup of tea uh, or maybe try to drink that cup of tea and only drink the cup of tea for a change and not drink the cup of tea while reading your email while on the conference call and so on. So it's just short moments that break the sometimes crazy momentum that we get lost in and they make a difference too. Yeah, so short moments many times during the day or kind of just carving out some time where you can just concentrate on strengthening your practice versus multitasking or both, yeah, versus multitasking throughout your day, which is oftentimes what a lot of us tend to do. Well, we do it in part because we believe it's going to help us get more things done, but and do them well, and I think studies show that both are untrue, that we're not, we're not getting more done and we're not doing things that well. Yeah, absolutely. And then this kind of rolls into something that you said at a retreat that uh, I was at that you spoke at through the path a couple of weeks ago, and you were talking about concentration techniques mm-hmm. and how concentration techniques are important for meditation, uh, just as they are through life. And um, could you speak a little bit more about that? Because I know that's what really resonated with me because Mm -hmm. I wrote it down specifically. So can you kind of talk a little bit more about that? Mm -hmm. Well, most of us, you know, in life tend to find ourselves somewhat scattered or distracted. Maybe not in every arena of life, but somewhere, you know, and you don't have to be a meditator to know that. You just sit down to think something through and before you know it, you're gone. Um, And our minds jump to the past, they jump to the future. Not in a useful way, but in a completely useless way. Mm-hmm. Just going over and over and over and over things. And uh, in terms of the future being filled with anxiety about scenarios that have not happened that may never happen. And, um, you know, it's a huge dispersion of our life's energy. And, and it really disempowers us because we've lost all that energy. And so the process of concentration is not like harsh or punishing. But commonly in meditation, we choose an object of awareness, which could be something like the feeling of the breath, could be a loving-kindness phrase, uh, could be a sound, could be an image, could be a mantra, could be many things. And we rest our attention on that object. And then when we get distracted, because we will, we learn the art of letting go gently and simply returning to that object without so much judgment and condemnation of ourselves. So we learn to let go and begin again and We do that over and over and over again. And what happens is that our attention starts to get stabilized. It's not that it never wanders, but it's not the same. We can come back so much more quickly, so much more gracefully. Um, Our attention stays steady for a longer period before we wander and so on. So that's actually the practice. And, And it's a skills training like any other skill. And so it takes some time. It takes some endeavor, but it actually works. Yeah, and at the retreat, you sort of gave this example of the food on the fork mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm, I don't know if mm-hmm. it was broccoli on the fork or what it exactly. Broccoli, was yeah. it broccoli? I thought it was broccoli. It broccoli. Yeah. So could you give that example? Because I thought that that was, 
for me, it just really helped me to understand the importance of that concentration. Sure. I mean, the, the um, uh, example that I used is used very, very often in places like Burma where I did some significant period of practice. So, And it's very simple. So just imagine there's a piece of food on a plate, say a piece of broccoli, and in your hand you're holding a fork with the rather obvious goal of wanting to bring the fork to the broccoli so that you can lift and eat it. And to do that, it said that we need two different qualities. And these, this example is used to describe almost the technicalities of this kind of meditation practice. So the first thing you need to do is take the fork and just aim it toward the piece of broccoli. If you wave the fork around in the air, you're not going to have a lot of lunch. So you just take it and aim it. And the second quality we need is a, a very sensitive and balanced modulation of our energy. If the fork just hangs there in your hand, you're not going to have a lot of lunch. And yet, if you like bash the fork into the broccoli so that everything goes flying, you're also not going to have anything to eat. So we aim and we connect. We aim and we connect. And that's actually kind of the mechanics of the what we do in concentration practice, along with letting go and beginning again. So... You know, you don't have to, it's nothing fancy. You don't have to get all uptight. You don't have to, like, do preliminary work. You don't have to feel you're incapable. Everyone's capable of doing that. The question is doing it a little more often than we tend to do it, you know. And so we we set aside these periods of time. Yeah, and I just, I love that example because it, sometimes with meditation, I think because you can't, quote, unquote, see it. <laughs> It's hard to conceptualize it. And so I love that example because it gives you a clear, everyone can picture, you know, stabbing at something with your fork mm -hmm. and not being able to pick it up or aiming all over the place. And I just think that it, for me, it really helped solidify in my mind when I am like meditating and my mind kind of wanders off. Mm -hmm. and, and instead of saying to yourself, oh God, you're so stupid, you can't even meditate. You know, That's you... This mm -hmm. is crazy. That's exactly right. I mean, especially it's interesting to me that these days there's so much interest in resilience, and, and here's resilience right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, our minds will wander. And does it really help if we follow that period of wandering with a long, long, long denunciation of ourselves? Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't really help. What happens is that um, – we have it now extended the period of the distractions, sometimes considerably, and we're exhausted, we're demoralized. What actually helps is to have some self-compassion, to let go and begin again. That's how we, that's how we make progress, that's how we change a habit, um, that's how we learn something new. We're always having to begin again. Yeah, and I think how you said, you know, it's okay to kind of forgive yourself and move on, and I think a question that someone asked during this full day meditation is, is forgiving yourself a form of laziness? Mm -hmm. You know, so you did something like, oh, I'm going to meditate on it and forgive myself. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a common, common question. I think true self-compassion is not at all a form of laziness. I think that uh, if you really look at kind of a harsh, punitive environment, internal or external, and honestly, ask yourself, how much learning can happen there? Um, I mean, I think studies show, uh, performance studies of different kinds show that, 
yes, one's performance in that kind of environment will spike, but briefly, and then we crash. So if you're talking about wanting to make a sustained effort, well, you must see it when you work with clients, right? You know, mm-hmm. that, that uh, what is resiliency? And we need it. We need something that allows us to, you know, not be perfect all the time and or to fall down and get up or let someone else help us up or whatever the case may be. Because I think that is actually kind of the nature of things. What I say in this age of my life, I say nothing in life is a straight shot. You know, we're always like fumbling or making a mistake or needing to start over. And so we can. That's the miracle of it that we can. And and I think that's important, especially for, you know, the listeners of this podcast tend to be, like I said, people who take care of others. And I think it's important, too, as the caregiver to understand that the the patient or the client is going to have setbacks mm-hmm. and that that's okay and that you can't punish yourself for a setback of a client, which happens often. You know, we often take take on the burden of when our patients don't get better, mm-hmm. that we failed them, when in fact, like right. you said, nothing's a straight shot. I think that's really true. And, and uh, everything is so intricately woven of so many causes and conditions, you know, that uh, we, we tend also to be kind of linear, like this should cause that with no other influence. And it's just not that way, you know. No. Um, for anything. No, it never is. It never is. And, you know, and that kind of takes takes me into thinking about uh, sort of maintaining a bit of a balance, right? And there's mm-hmm. a balance when it comes to meditation, something that you had said at the retreat, which really got me thinking was that we want to be both awakened and calm. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously not in perfect balance. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, in, in uh, almost like the science of meditation, we say that... Um, there are many, many different qualities we're cultivating, we're strengthening, and a whole set of them have to do with tranquility and calm and relaxing and de-stressing, and a whole set of them have to do with energy and alertness and wakefulness and interest in our experience and so on. So, you know, clearly these are very different feeling um, qualities, and so we want both, and we want them in a good balance. So. Sometimes, you know, one side of it is cooking and the other side not so much. And we notice that and we, you know, we apply different antidotes or we try to redress that. But in the end, what we're looking for is not just a state of relaxation because you might as well have taken a nap. (laughs) And it's not just a state of energy because then you'll get agitated. Uh, But it's really the combination of both. Yeah. and, and, And it's okay if that's not always perfectly balanced because is it ever? Uh momentarily momentarily <laughs> yeah or you know for a period a brief period it can be you know perfectly balanced and then it's not again so it's okay and that's okay yeah i i think oftentimes we put so much pressure on ourselves to sort of keep it all together uh-huh. and that oftentimes people turn to meditation and kind of have this expectation that if they meditate then they're going to be happy or they're going to be relaxed or they're going to be X, Y, and Z. I'm sure you hear that a lot. Right. So mm-hmm. how do you manage the expectations of people when it comes <laughs> to meditation? I know it's a big question. Yeah, well, actually, my mind went to, I wonder if they, in physical therapy, if you're looking for that same kind of balance, you know, with the muscle, you're looking for stability and... And mobility. Limberness and yeah. mobility at the 100%. same time. 100%, yes, Yeah, yes. that's where my mind went, so... 
Um, in terms of expectations, I usually try to anticipate them because they're common. Uh, one of the biggest expectations is that if I were really good at meditation, my mind would be blank. I wouldn't have any thoughts. Um, it, it would somehow be blank and there would be a strange kind of calm because nothing was happening. Um, and that's not true. We say that our goal is not to wipe out thoughts. Our goal is to develop a different relationship to our thoughts and to everything, to our emotions, to our bodies, so that the kind of awareness we are cultivating is balanced, it's clear, it's present, uh, it's loving. And, you know, you can have a ton of thoughts and have really great meditation if that was how you were paying attention to those thoughts. Um, and so, you know, people suffer so much and, uh, often these days when I'm introduced as a meditation teacher, like at a party or something, people will say, oh, I tried that once. I failed at it. I could never do it. And if you you know have enough time to talk to them, you find out the reason they think that is because they had some fixed idea, usually around thinking about what should have happened that didn't happen, and so think, oh, I can't do it. But of course we can do it. And we say there's no such thing as failing at this. You can't fail at this. You can't have the wrong experience. Because what's happening is so much less important than how we're relating to what's happening. Yes. Gosh, that makes so much sense. Um, I, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, um, the one thing that I got from your talk a couple of weeks ago, and I guess this kind of goes in line with the book, the book is called Real Love, and it's, the idea that love is not a feeling, but it's an ability. Mm -hmm. And I think if you ask 20 people on the street, most people would say that love is certainly a feeling mm -hmm. versus an ability. So can you expand on that a little bit? Mm -hmm. The line is actually from a movie, Dan in Real Life, which was, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13 years ago, something like that. And uh, it's just that line, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. And... Um, in trying to quote it directly, uh, one of my editors kept saying to me, well, you can't say that because love is a feeling and it's the feeling that we want. It's what we long for in life. It's what we yearn for. Um, and so I tried to say, you know, of course, we know it is a feeling and it is a feeling, but what if we shifted our understanding to also acknowledge it as an ability? And I felt like that came very close to a, a powerful experience I had when I was practicing meditation in Burma where <clears> – <throat> It's almost as though prior to that that time, I really kind of thought of love as a commodity, almost like a package that was in someone else's hands, which meant that someone else owned it in a way that they could either deliver it to me or take it away from me. And were they to take it away from me, I'd be just bereft. There would be no love in my life. And what I realized at that time was love was inside me. It was a capacity. It was an ability inside me. And it wasn't really like the UPS man standing on my doorstep and changing his mind and going somewhere else, like taking all my love, you know. I thought it was mine. could bring it back. Um, it was within me. And other people certainly can enliven it or uh, enhance it or threaten it or whatever, but it's mine. It's mine to cultivate. It's mine to develop. And um, that was a huge turning point for me. And when you have you know, learning that it's inside you, we also all have these sort of inner critics that try and kind of take that, those feelings away. Yeah. Or try and overtake those feelings. So 
what do you do when you have an inner critic? Because everybody has an inner critic, right? Even you, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so how do you deal with that? Well, one of the things we encourage, if the if the critical voice is is kind of a consistent one, uh, give it a name. Like give it a persona. You know, give it a name. Maybe give it a wardrobe. Mm-hmm. So I named my inner critic Lucy, with apologies to all Lucys out there, um, after the uh, character in the comic strip, the Peanuts comic strip. And it came about after I saw a cartoon uh, in which the first frame, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. And then the second frame, poor Charlie Brown says, what in the world can I do about that? And then Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. And somehow whenever I was, it was, that cartoon was left in a desk in a house I was moving into. And somehow whenever I walked by that desk, my eye would fall right on that line. The problem with you is that you're you. Because that Lucy dominant voice had been so strong in my earlier life. And it was really through all my years of training and meditation that, I, I saw that I could then hear the voice and say, hi, Lucy, which was, or chill out, Lucy, which was very different than you're right, Lucy. You're always right. I'm not worth anything. And it's also different than being so ashamed and so freaked out that Lucy's arrived, like shouldn't be here I've been meditating all these years while she's still here. Uh, it avoids both those extremes. And we say mindfulness slices right through the middle where we can recognize, oh, hi, Lucy but not be so afraid or, or so upset, we can actually deal more skillfully with Lucy then. Got it. Yeah, it's, you know, everyone has that inner critic and, and sometimes it's enough to take over. So I think focusing on it, giving that inner critic a name and acknowledging that that critic is there and mm-hmm. then, and then figuring out now how can I deal with this versus always going down that path of, like you said, you're right. Why do I even bother? Mm-hmm. Why do I even try? Why do I even? And I think the same can go with if you're a beginner learning meditation, right? That's right. If mm-hmm. you feel oh, like my wa- my mind's wandering a thousand times, clearly I'm doing it wrong. Clearly this. And then you say, like that woman said, I just didn't get it. Right. You know? Right. And so all of these, I think being able to acknowledge and then move away from that inner critic and being able to meditate and focus on the good things. Mm -hmm. Not all the time, but you know, I think that it's that, that it's a big part of, of making you happy. Of of contributing to happiness in your life. Yeah. And I think we also need to remember in that spirit that, our own happiness is the source of being able to truly help others in a sustained way because uh, being miserable and feeling overcome and feeling exhausted and fatigued is not a great atmosphere for us to be able to genuinely and lovingly give to others. Uh, We need a much greater sense of inner abundance or inner resource going in in order to continue to serve. Yeah, and and I think that leads into uh, a practice that you hear a lot about now, and it's uh, a gratitude practice. Mm -hmm. And so why is that important in meditation, and I guess in a larger sense in life? Well, I think it's important because we uh, can tend to have tunnel vision. Not everybody, of course, but many of us. Um, 
maybe come to the end of the day and are more likely to think about everything we can complain about rather than everything we have to be grateful for. And it's only really when we kind of um, not cling to those wonderful things, but we kind of hold them close for a moment that they really register, you know, and, and we go, wow, look at that. Um, I'm breathing, wow. Or uh, look at these friends, you know, it's so amazing, what a gift. Or or, or even just a, a momentary thing, like um, I walked outside earlier today and there was this beautiful breeze and I've been in so many places where lately where it was either so cold or so hot. And I walked out and I thought, oh, this feels so good. You know, and then I went on to teach. So it's like that. Mm-hmm. It's it's mm-hmm. those moments. And uh, they actually count. They make a significant difference, neuroscientists say. Uh, so the kind of one of the uh, kind of uh, inspiring new things that many researchers and, and psychologists are recommending is a gratitude journal where at the end of the day, you just write down three things that you're grateful for from the day. And I always say it doesn't need to be grandiose. It doesn't need to be magnificent. Even that you're breathing is a pretty great thing. <laughs> yeah, I'd and say it, so. <laughs> yeah, it just helps round out the picture to a more truthful picture. Yeah, versus always saying, oh, you know, that, that one thing that you did that is on your mind because it, it threw your day off mm-hmm. versus the other 10 things that happened that were pretty pretty good. Exactly. And so uh, the thing we're used to is actually quite limiting, which is just looking at what to complain about or what's threatening to us. And it completely overlooks the, the cultivation of our sense of inner resource. Yeah. And then how, what, what would you say to people who say, well, the only time this person's happy is when they're complaining? Did you ever hear that? I'm sure you've heard that. I've probably heard that in my youth. It yeah. sounds familiar. Yeah. It's, they, oh, this, they're, they're miserable. They're only happy if they're miserable. Or they're only happy if they're complaining. Well, I think the, um, the basic premise is that everybody actually wants to be happy. Not in a superficial sense, but in a deeper sense. We all want to feel a sense of belonging somewhere in this body, in this mind, in this family, in this life. Um, We want a sense of being a part of something greater than our limited sense of who we are. The problem is not really being able to easily figure it out. Where is that happiness to be found? And um, This, in a way, ends up being a significant reflection in my book because we're taught so many things about love. We're taught so many things about compassion. You know, love needs to be romantic. It needs to look in this way. It needs to um, involve this or... uh, you know, what does it mean, though? What does it mean to have love for someone else and ourselves at the same time? And what does it mean to have compassion for someone and realize, I can't fix it. This is not in my hands to just dominate and make some, you know, ordeal go away. And what does it mean to have loving compassion for someone and realize, I don't agree with them and I'm going to fight them, uh, but not from a place of hatred. And so these are very profound questions about how we live our lives. And We're not analyzing them and trying to figure it out in meditation, but we're going through a series of experiences which bring us a kind of embodied wisdom so that we've really explored pretty deeply those kinds of questions and and where happiness lies and, and where balance lies. And and all you answer all those questions in the new book, right? 
Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, that, that is what the book is about. Right, exactly. So that is what the book is about. So let's talk for a few minutes about the new book. So mm-hmm. the new book is Real Love. It comes out tomorrow. What are What is your hope for people upon reading that book? Um, I would hope that people actually uh, use some of the exercises and the meditations there to explore in, in a really direct way um, the matter of love. You know, I want to help change the way we use the word, especially if you think of love as something sentimental or uh, kind of weakening in any way, because I think it's a tremendous power. And the book has three sections, uh, love for oneself, love for another, whether that's a parent or a child or a partner or a pet or whatever. And then the third is love for all beings, love for life itself. And uh, I think each one has a kind of uh, healing component and and kind of leads to the other until it looks like a very different life. And it's very different from, I think oftentimes when you think about, when the word love comes up, you think of that grandiose Hollywood yeah. example of love, right? Yeah, it's very different than that. When I first... Uh, was talking about writing the book. Somebody in the publishing world said to me, well, the love market's really saturated. And I thought, well, you know, maybe the how to get a relationship, how to fix a relationship market's really saturated, but that's not this kind of book. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a much it's a much different sounding book than the, like you said, um, how, to, how to fix your life or how to end up with the, I don't know, the perfect, partner the perfect whatever at the end of the day and so the book is split up into those three different sections and that sort of kind of brings us back to what we talked about first off was that loving kindness meditation kind of mm-hmm. coincides with that right yeah i mean loving kindness meditation is one of the threads throughout as well as like interactive exercises and, and a lot of reflections and journaling and things like that yeah, well, I know that I am definitely looking forward to it. I have pre-ordered my copy. Thank and you. Yes, and for everyone who is interested, we'll have links and everything in the show notes so that you can go and you can click on it today and 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 get it ASAP. Um, so before we end, Sharon, I have one more question that I've been asking all of my guests at the end of each episode, mm-hmm. and that is knowing where you are now and where you are in life, what would you say to that new grad self you went to suny buffalo right (laughs) i did what would you say to the new grad sharon um when she graduated from suny buffalo knowing where you are now oh i would say uh there are tremendous surprises ahead and uh keep breathing (laughs) a great advice simple easy and profound all at the same time um so as before we sign off here um, is there anything that we kind of miss that you want to, you know, give a special shout out for the book? For the book. Um, I think there is actually also, a, a, we didn't miss it really, but um, there's a whole section on compassion and uh, what is maybe commonly called compassion fatigue and um, the difference between empathy and compassion, which I find very compelling for mm. caregivers of any kind. Yeah, empathy, that is difficult because oftentimes caregivers tend to be overly empathetic. That's right. And 
when you take, it's great to have empathy, but to take on everything that your client clients are feeling multiple, mm -hmm. again, like we talked about earlier, it, that it's, it's not healthy. Right. You That's know, right. and, and so you can have compassion obviously for everyone and everything, but it doesn't mean you have to take it on for yourself. Right. Well, if, if you take it on for yourself, it's too destructive in the end. So, yeah. um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very intrigued by the topic and I'm glad that there's, there are whole sections on it in the book. Yeah. I look for, I look forward to that cause I'm kind of one of those people. So I definitely <laughs> look forward to reading that part, uh, in the book. Yeah. And, and like we said, um, if you want to order the book, you can just go straight to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com to the show notes and click on it. Or you can go to SharonSalzberg.com, I'm assuming. Or yes, it's yep. reallovebook.com, is that right? Yeah, that's the hashtag. Right, right. So you'll be, we'll be hashtagging it the whole time. And people can buy the book from your website. Any, any other places? Uh, there are many places. On my website, there's, there's a whole list of the kind of um, all the places it could be pre-ordered and then ordered. Perfect, perfect. And we'll have everything in the show notes. So it's one click and you can get everything you need. Um, okay, so Sharon, thank you so much for taking the time out and coming on the podcast. This was this was great. Again, I, I said said beforehand. I usually send people questions, and I said to Sharon, I know it doesn't really matter the questions that I send because it's she has this amazing ability to answer things, no matter what it is. It's 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 amazing. So I thank you so much. Well, thank you. And everyone who uh, out there listening, thank you for joining us today. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.